Carrying huge space. Look how fast he's going. Polar opposite to the conditions he won in Lords. Rain so close. They're getting the last step down. The crowd is roaring. He is going to do it. He's going to smash the time. Downhill racer and our expert here today, Andrew Needling. Welcome back, sports fans. This is Moving the Needle Podcast, and I'm your host, Andrew Niedling. And welcome to the Crank Brothers Race Review. That's where I will be joined by some awesome guests. Now, Crank Brothers, they are synonymous with downhill racing. Last year, they celebrated 11 years in a row of elite world champs wins with that mallet DH pedal. Now, think about that. And Sven loves to chirp me and say, well, we've got to remember that uh, Sam Hill won on a flat pedal as well. So we all know that Crank Brothers has a rich history in the sport, as well as supporting the sport of downhill, like this podcast. Now they've gone on to add to their product offering. Now I'm in their shoes, easily one of, no, not one of. It's actually the most comfortable shoe I've had, and I'll talk about that more later. But riders like Bernard Kerr, Lucas Shaw, Laurie Greenland, Cami Blanche, they all are in these shoes, and it's not just kept for people that ride Crank Brothers pedals. Someone like Eddie Masters also throws his name in the mix there. Now I'm joined by another Crank Brothers ambassador, none other than Alan Milway, who coached me back in the day, and he's got some awesome riders under his roster like Greg Menard, Charlie Hatton, former riders like Danny Hart when he won the world title. Now Alan Milway... Welcome to the show. When I was uh, searching your email address in my inbox, a host oh, how of long, training... How far did they go back? How far did they go back, quite, Andrew? F- quite far. Down, back to 2015. <laughs> I couldn't find the podcast link email, but what was top of the list was training program after training program. <laughs> and I just quickly got out of that because I don't want to remember how hard I had to train for Fort William. And that oh, is yeah. almost one of the big topics here is the preparation the training, and the physicality of the event. But uh, welcome to the show. Uh, thanks so much for joining. And you back after a cold and wet and sort of draining week up at Fort William. Yeah, it's been um, it's been quite a battle as ever, Fort William. Real highs and real lows. Um, quite a mix. It, as ever, Fort William's brutal. You know, we saw pretty early on with Lowick going down and breaking his collarbone that it wasn't going to take any prisoners. And I was thinking since they missed a year or two there, now we know all these races do as much work as they can with the budgets they have. Um, Sometimes weather doesn't play along to help them sort of prep the track long in advance. And I did hear some riders saying, you know, they did some work, but it didn't have time to settle in, especially with that weather. But if you think about missing a race for two years, and I know when we went there, every year they'd work on a certain section or they know, okay, that one needs work. Not having a race there for two years, I mean, are you going to invest that much time into that course when you know it's going to have a whole winter to get smashed about and then you do a bunch of work but no one's racing? So I think this probably, from what I could gather, sitting here in the comfort of my own home, warm, sitting in front of a fire, that was probably (laughs) one of the most brutal I've seen Fort William. And you could see it from the holes. and, And what do you think? You were there on the ground. Yeah, well, what was really interesting, uh, I think some people would obviously know that there was a, a BDS, a national round, a couple of weeks before, and a lot of the riders had gone up there, and they used that as a real useful like live test session, really. And it was very interesting because 
like Greg had flown in just for that race because he wanted to try and get bike set up. Charlie had put in an absolute stormer of a qualifying run, but then crashed in the final. So, you know, he had a big hematoma on his hip and he was sort of sore coming into the race. But their comments to me and speaking to a lot of the other riders was the top section at Fort William. You can't do much to that um, route, essentially. I don't know if, if you go back to the days when you, you we used to go out of the gondola station, actually turn left. Back in the day, originally, you used to turn left and not right, and it was sort of through the peat bog. But now that top section is pretty much dialed in, and all they do year to year, month to month, is essentially add sort of gravel and maybe even some cement dust into that to fill the holes. Now, when we were doing track walk on Thursday, a load of the riders were excited. Everyone was like, this is smooth. They filled in the holes. This is going to be amazing. But they just laid that, you know, they'd laid that gravel that I think is helicoptered in. And it, it, it was almost like really wet beach sand. It sort of had that consistency. So you knew it wasn't going to pack in. So that was the top section to the deer gate. But then after the deer gate, there was a huge change. And to be honest, that to me was really exciting because uh, you used to go through the deer gate and originally we used to turn left. But over the past couple of races, we've turned right or gone straight on really. But now they took us left again and they took us down this section. And I'd say for the next third of the track until the Red Bull sort of road gap, that was all new. That was all different. And although it wasn't fresh, I think that was a really good challenge. It hadn't been ridden. It gave the lines a chance to develop. And that kept a lot of us coaches really busy because that was where the the focus of the riders was because it kept changing. And that's something you often don't see in Fort William, is it? It just that this is your track. How fast can you ride it? But this year it really was a case of adapting to the conditions. Yeah, that's super interesting because I was researching and writing an article and I think there's a couple points. I know weather plays a role, but I think it plays less of a role in there's not a wet rider that's going to stand out. Yeah. There's yeah. um, the track doesn't change as much, but you know I had to hold my words back because I hadn't seen the full track. But you're right, the top can only be ridden, you know, a certain few ways. It's it's super, you know. There's no room for error up there. You saw with Valley Hole or a few others. Like once you make a yeah. small mistake, you don't have track to run off and and save a crash. But that's interesting and good for the riders that there was say a section that was developing. And often, you know, when they try a new wood section that evolves over the weekend. So riders, here's what's interesting. It's probably more uh, beneficial to have a coach to say, hey, that line's gone, try the other one, because you don't yeah, want to be exactly. doing too many practice runs on a long track like that. It's not like yeah, you can yeah. just uh, chill uh, all the way down to this new wood section, uh, try a line or two. You are wasting a lot of energy, even if you ride actually almost more energy when you don't attack because you get hit by all the bumps. So uh, it's pretty crucial that these riders got their lines dialed in. I heard there was a lot of puzzling, for lack of a better term, but since yeah. you've got Greg in your your paddock <laughs> there, that's the word he uses. And, um, yeah, that, that was cool to see the different lines, and I saw some practice. There was ways to hop over some bumps, but come race day, it was brutal in there. Yeah, this is it. They. It was interesting to see how stuff developed in a way we sort of knew it would. There was a couple of lines that um, in Fort William, once you go off that bedrock, you end up in basically a peat bog and it's really, really soft. Now, there might be an inside line that 
is faster. It's more direct. You are, you, you're missing a corner out, but you know that after a hundred tire tracks have gone through that, it's going to be axle deep and that changes the game again. So it was really interesting. Some of the conversations I was having because you could show that there was an inside line that was faster, but you could, I'm not saying disregard it, but a lot of the riders were like, that's fine for now, but we know come Sunday that won't be the case or it will be a really big risk. And I think um, Charlie Harrison went down on one of these risky, it was like a lily pad. You sort of hopped on and then hopped back off again, but it was just in really soft mud. And I know that the Madison Saracen boys, I think both Matt and Jordan were taking that line. And with their results, you can see, you know, it was clearly a very good line to be on. But a lot of the a lot of people I was talking to were concerned that it was just too risky or not consistent. And I think consistency at Fort William over, you know, four and a half minutes plus is really the key. It's all well and good being 0.3 of a second faster in one section. But, you know, I think average speed consistency is what really wins the day there. And the track is obviously fast paced, but there's not a lot of gradients. So when you take a riskier line, you really could mess up a long section of track after that and lose way more time than say on a steep section where it's worth taking a risk and you'd only lose 0.3 of a second or something like that. But we saw that with Laurie Greenland. It wasn't a risky line. It was just a very challenging section. Didn't look too bad on the live stream, but you know the momentum he lost on just before the Red Bull road gap yeah, this is it. Cost him. He was up by over a second riding well. I think there was that sort of mistake that he mentioned, and you could see it. And then, I mean, he's a smaller rider. I, I just The wind does sort of funnel in there at different angles sometimes, I think. Wind can play a factor versus, you know, a rider that qualifies 15th versus first. I mean, Deprella, to me, had a lot of rain at the top. You could hear it on the live feed. You could hear it on the camera. Yeah. Versus some other riders that had different and and what's your opinion on that? Sometimes it's good that there's sort of rain coming down because some sections actually have more grip. When the rain stops, a few sections turn a bit more peanut buttery. So a uh, little bit of a lottery there. That's true, but when you look at the where the rain comes in, I I split Fort William into thirds essentially. The top third to the deer gate. The second third is to sort of the, the Red Bull drop that you were talking where Laurie got stalled up before. And then the bottom third is as you go from there through the last part of the woods and onto the motorway. Now, when you see all that rain coming down, that massively affects the top section, the top third. When you get into the woods, it doesn't really make a difference. It will make a difference overnight and over six hours. But over the course of half an hour, it comes and goes. To me, the biggest factor for these riders that doesn't always pick up on camera is the wind because the wind changes so much and one of the juniors I coach he was on the boardwalk and literally got blown off the boardwalk and uh, you know another I think it was Charlie went to pull a tear off maybe not in his finals run maybe in qualification and he took one hand off the bars and nearly got blown off a boardwalk so you can have with from one rider to the next you can have a headwind a tailwind a crosswind it will affect whether are you going to stand up and pedal or just try and get as small as you possibly can, uh, you know that really makes uh, to me that really makes a big 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 difference and is is that's the lottery of Fort William really. Yeah, it's it's I do stand by that the weather plays less of a role than say if the rain comes down at Leger or Leo yeah. Gang or Champery yeah. or something like that. You know, then it's a real crapshoot. But 
you know, you get fair, consistent racing within reason at Fort William, even if it's rainy and shitty. I yeah, mean, those yeah. conditions. But I think the bigger factor, and you would have seen it with your riders and how you help them prepare, and maybe is just like how draining that week is. If you're not mentally on top of it and manage your expectations coming in, it is a grueling week. Now, we know they all prepare, but I mean, you are literally wet and cold for oh, yeah, a couple exactly. days running, and then you've got to get up there and you've got to suck it up and you've got to do practice. You've got to do a lot of runs. You've got to you know, ride these uh, sections that are ever developing. And then you've got to have your best effort come Sunday Thank afternoon. You. You know, the last that's after do. Yeah. yeah, after a wet track walk, which takes long to do. You know, um, so I think just physically, it's the most brutal track of the year, almost, in my opinion. Yeah, I, th- I think you're right. I, I do think with the, when you put in the weather conditions, the length of the track, like that's over a two-hour track walk. You know, to get down it, it's a very long way, and. This is one of the courses, and I haven't been to one in a long time, where they wouldn't let us up on our bikes. So normally coaches will put our bikes on the lift, we'll go to the top and we'll come down the side, um, we'll sort of intersect the track at key points. But I wasn't able to do that. I had to, luckily I was on my Husky e-bike, and I could just ride up to the side and find a spot and then walk the other parts. But what we found is a strategy that I was using with the riders I coach was we were looking at which parts of the track were key and we were re-riding them. So instead of doing a full lap and then coming back and focusing on a different line on that section, they were actually stopping and then I would push the bike back up and they would try it again. Because like you say, it's about conserving energy. Do you need to ride that top section, that top third to the deer gate six times in the day? You know, that's brutal. But ride it once, ride it twice, get up to speed, feel comfortable and then, right, what are the key parts of this track that are developing, that are changing, and that they don't they don't know? They don't know every rock and route in the, that middle third. So we really try to conserve energy. And I know Greg's really good at that. Charlie was really good at that. Joe Breeden was really analytical. And he actually spent, him and Greg went up the lift. It was quite funny. I had a phone call from them. And they're in the gondola going up after qualifying. And neither one of them were really sure whether to track walk. They were like, what do you think, Alan? Should we walk the track? Should we not walk the track? And I'd been up there and sent them all like videos with updates so they could see the lines. And I said, well, it's a long way down. You know, it's windy, it's wet. What's the score? What do you think? And because of their practice times being a bit later on Sunday, they sort of decided that they did want to go about it. So for me, I was just reinforcing the recovery from that two-hour hike down a mountain. You know, for some people, it's crazy to think, but some people, they'll go to Fort William to walk from top to bottom and they might do that once in the day and that's their day's activity you know these <laughs> what guys a, mere, you a mere mortal <laughs> yeah exactly that but not these a... guys are just not an, are not a professional athlete but these guys are doing a two-hour hike you know down the mountain after it after qualifying and and obviously that the whole thing comes into play and you know, Greg had had a great qualifying. Joe's not protected, so had to. He got down in the mid twenties, and he was really happy. But they're wanting to find these extra tents all the time. And as much as I was umming and ahhing, I completely understand. And, and they were both happy they did it. Yeah, I'm blown away by that because it is really that Greg's risking a little bit of fatigue, which could affect him. But we know he's fit, so he backs himself there. But just to find 
one or two lines or or calm his head. Yeah. It's fascinating because if you really break it down, you could send you down again with a video. Yeah. I'd rather do yeah, that. Yeah. I think with technology yeah. these days, uh, on that course, yeah. But as a coach, you you've got to let the rider make the decision because you know the, all the responsibility at the end of the day lands on him. But you're obviously hoping he would take the the calmer route and and sort of go and rest, but. Yeah, that's what yeah, makes racing so fascinating. The mind is so fickle, you know. You can't yeah. get in the way of their decision, which might help their confidence. You're right. And the, the other thing that's you say the pressure's all on them. I'll tell you what, Gri- I'll tell you what, I feel some pressure as well, Andrew, because, um, you know, they'll say a, a good example in qualifying, the section that you were discussing, the last part of the woods before the, the Red Bull stepped down, the road gap, there was... It's a real shame the camera wasn't there because that section was one of the key sections for us. It developed, it changed. There was three lines. There was a very inside line, there was a middle, and then there was a very outside line. And as the the practice went on, the outside line was the one to be on. You went really nice and wide, and then you came through the middle, and it was rutting up beautifully. It had a nice ledge on it, and then it allowed you to pull, pull riders right, and then you'd hook a nice tight left-hander. Now, if you didn't pull up right, that tight left-hander is where everyone got snaggled up. That's where Laurie got snaggled up. That's where a lot of riders ended up almost facing up the hill with the wrong foot out. Now, that line was changing and the the middle benched out rutted line was falling away and it was being pushed lower and lower and lower, almost to the point where it wasn't rideable. And the last thing Charlie said to me before he went up for qualifying was, please, can you go up to that section film it so I can see the conditions, send it to me. So before my run starts, I know whether I can hit that berm or I've got to tiptoe into it and come high. And I said, no problem. And oh, I filmed it, I sent it, but I had bloody fake 4G. You know, it tells you you've got 4G and nothing happens. <laughs> Did so it never send? Did it never send? Never sent. And his mechanic, <laughs> his mechanic phones me and he says, Alan, where's this video? You know, what are you playing at? And I'd sent it. I'd sent it. I promise you I've sent it. So in the end, he got shown the video like five seconds before he started. He's putting his goggles on in the start hut, got shown this video. And anyway, I'm standing there in qualifying and Charlie comes past me. He has the wrong foot out. He gets caught up in that corner. It was a disaster. And I remember just thinking, oh, we both cocked this right up. And I was really bummed out. And then I get to the bottom and the radio goes on and it's like, oh, Charlie's, Charlie's come down in second. Oh, no, he was first by six seconds at that point. He'd gone six seconds faster to Prella. And I was like, how has he done this? But you can see that that is just one part of the track, you know, and, and it's trying to get these guys comfortable so they know how hard to hit it, how hard to push. But then, yeah, trying to get that balance that they're not just focused on one piece of track. Because one piece of track doesn't make a race run, does it? You've got to put the whole thing together. Yeah, it's uh, the same thing happened at Lords almost in that off-gamber section. And it was frantic the morning of race. You're like, guys, we've had yeah. three days. But unfortunately, yeah. the track changes that, wow, it's a race day, last run decision, hiking bikes up, most top riders just really you know, trying to figure it out. But you're right. uh, It it is a challenge and it's one of your biggest jobs is to sort of just take the emotion out of that one section, maybe help them realize everyone's struggling there. And if you're not feeling confident, then it's no point wasting all your energy, your mental energy on one section. You've got, especially at Fort William, you can do a lot of damage if you are attacking consistent the whole way down. 
which obviously our race winners were able to do. Now you're in the pits, uh, you know, you've got a few riders to look after. So you're in the pits there with Greg and uh, Nina Hoffman, that was a pretty yeah. commanding win. And and what was her, her attitude after the race was, well, it's the weather's the weather and we've all got to get down. So it is what it is. And it seemed like she had a great attitude coming in. It probably helped her having that win uh, over Valley in the BDS. And that's that race is catch-22. You know, if you do well, it helps with confidence. If you yeah. don't do well, you've got to make up some sort of excuse to keep the confidence coming in. So it's a it's a yeah, challenging it. thing to have this race before. Um, but her, her win was so commanding. It's, it's really great to see. And I think she's so strong. She was attacking the whole way down, looked consistent. I don't know what you gathered throughout the week there. Yeah, I've I've got to know Nina obviously from being being around the the team and and she's she's got an amazing attitude, a real athlete. And but what I find really interesting is with um, some of the 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 guys especially, they come in with this, you know, they puff their chests out, they're really confident to start with, and they're like, right, I'm going to smash this, and they they almost potentially get knocked down a peg or two as the week goes on whether their pace is up to speed or they have a crash or the bike set up but they start from generally a very positive position but Nina's not always like that I think that sometimes she her confidence has been knocked a few times and even in qualifying at Lords she had a crash and she I think she feels a lot of pressure being in that big setup you know she's come from essentially a privateer team to being there's a lot of people in those pits you know there's like I I I'd struggle to get my game face on with all the things going on. And I don't know how that is for her, but what I thought was amazing was the fact that she could channel that to go, right, what I need to do is go and attack. And that's what I really thought was incredible in her race run. And when you compared her race run and watched some of the other girls on that podium come down, they didn't look as though they were attacking and they looked as though they were trying to survive the course. But Nina, like, come what may, she was like, well, it might not be the best way down here, but I'm going to go for it. Or I might not have come in on the perfect line, but I'm going to go for it. And that that really paid dividends because it was a commanding win and you felt as though she was attacking top to bottom. And I'm like, it was amazing. I was in the sort of, you know, the manager's sort of area right next to the, the finish line. And I, I could, I know she's an emotional girl. She wears her heart on her sleeve. And I had the, I just had the camera out because um, when Camille was on the track, you could see it looked like she wasn't going to be able to pull the time back. But you could see the emotions. She was like, "I'm going to win. I'm going to lose. Am I going to win? Am I going to lose? What's it going to be?" And it was a win-lose, wasn't it for her? It wasn't like first or second. It was like, "Am I going to win this thing?" And then the, the point at which there was no coming back was just amazing for her to see it was it was so cool she just let it all like the relief and I think for her it really validates her position like I think she'll feel look I'm validated on this team I'm a World Cup winner I deserve this spot I'm going to now show you who's boss and I think that is I'm excited for her for the rest of the season because I'm sure she'll use that momentum yeah Alan I was thinking the same thing with Nina Um, now two World Cup wins which validates her you know on on the inside and Absolutely, it's her first huge factory ride. I mean, she's pitting with the likes of Greg Minar. And then also you've got Jackson Goldstones. He's doing pretty damn well in juniors as a junior world champion already. Laurie Greenland also has won a World Cup. So there's a lot of pedigree and it comes with expectations, whether you like it or not. There are going to be expectations. Teams don't really force it upon you. But I think, you know, you often just carry that weight. Um, and she's also had sort of a lot of injuries. So she doesn't want to come out firing, have a crash, 
miss half a season again. So it really does validate her, and it's awesome to see. It's so well earned, and I think the sky's almost a limit now. You know, now she can breathe. Now everything's almost a bonus, which she can ride a, a lot sort of lighter going into the rest of the season. Yeah, I completely agree. And, and a point you make that I think is really worth sort of reinforcing is the teams are really good in downhill. They don't pile loads of pressure on you. The riders do it for themselves, whether we like, you know, as much as we can try and tell them to relax, there's no one who feels more expectation and puts more pressure on themselves than the rider themselves. So it's nice for her. She can hopefully relax and trust. I think just trust in herself. She knows if she rides like Nina, she can win a world cup. And, and, and it's the same for any rider. Once they believe that, that they they can really go for it. Yeah, and, and not to take away from Cammy. I mean, I think she handled qualifying Fosters for the first time in her career very well, which I kind of am not surprised. She's just so uh, mentally strong, calm, gets on with the process. Um, she was probably the favorite. I guess Nina definitely, you know, there were question marks whether the BDS would translate into a win here. But for me, Cammy was probably the favorite coming in, especially after we heard, which will be basically a topic of the podcast as well as the the women here, although there's a few in the men as well, is the yeah. concussion that Miriam did mention that she's been suffering from in Lords, which, you know, we were really worried that she raced that race. And uh, unfortunately, you know, a lot of people on the internet as well as us were definitely vocal that shit, there's got to be a process in place. But maybe before we jump on to that is Cammy. I mean, to come down last at a race like Fort William, where, you know, the crowd is going to be like it is down the bottom, but it is quite empty at the top, which is eerie, but maybe takes a little bit of the pressure off. You know, it's quiet at the top, at least it's not huge spectators. So it doesn't feel like a big race when you set off and you can find your way into the run, but she did seem, she seemed to be happy, but her riding style seemed a little tighter than someone like Nina, who was just constantly trying to make forward momentum, yeah. like you said, attacking. I'm going to get down. I'm going to use sort of brute force to get down. And Cammy is a more smoother rider of nature, but she seemed maybe a little tight, you know, maybe subconsciously kind of holding on to that 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 uh, qualifying run that she had, which often happens. Yeah. I mean, yeah. you don't know what to work towards. You've qualified faster, so how much faster do I need to go? Uh -oh. When you qualify fifth or sixth, you know, I got no choice but to go a lot faster. That's it. And funnily enough, I was looking, I went up on track um, for Crank Brothers, actually. We've done a, a little YouTube video about line choice and the, the differences uh, that you see in Fort William. And she was one of the riders that actually came past me as I was filming it. Now, Cami, I really like her technique on the bike. I think she looks really good on the bike. She's got a good position and she lets the bike flow. She's got a nice flowing style. But I think she did tighten up in the race run. Um, but what I th what I did notice, I was watching at the bottom with G. G was doing the sort of pit reporting and we were next to each other as we watched. And the two things that we saw that were quite interesting, and bear in mind, I've got no basis for this. This is just my observation from watching the runs and watching the riders. But Valley's bike, that crash was coming probably four corners back. And I don't know whether it was in bike setup or position, but the bike looked as though it was like working against Valley a lot of the time on the top section. And that was strange to see. And then also Miriam, Miriam rides to the back of the bike a lot. She really pushes her hips back, but this was almost even more so. And I do wonder whether they're, you know what it's like if you're a bit tentative, you almost push the front wheel away from you and you sit a little bit further back. 
but it's the worst thing you can do because the further back you go, the less grip you have on the front wheel. And I could, I don't know whether that was a conscious thing or unconscious with Miriam, but it did look as though she was really being tentative. And with Valley, the, I don't know whether it was in bike setup or the way she was riding it when she was pushing a lot, but it looked as though that front wheel just kept wanting to bounce and twist and bounce and twist. And then eventually she just got bucked off. Yeah, I mean, when you're, when you're pushing in a, in a race run, uh, depending on the course, sometimes you can get away from it. You can attack. You can kind of square off turns. And if Valley, like I say, we're just speaking from loose observation. And, and the front wheel did sort of slip, and she was sort of going the wrong way into that turn, so the crash was kind of coming. And it looked a little bit course conditions, but as well as is she sort of punching and really being aggressive in some of these turns, and that's when you can get bitten at Fort William because there's no runoff. So, yeah, maybe a little bit of both, maybe just riding pretty aggressively, overconfident, uh, which you want to in a race run. But those turns are so, there's like such a fine line of where the good race line is. And if you're a little bit off, you might might lose it. But Miriam is an interesting one because, I mean, pun intended, it was going to play on her head or on her mind yeah. coming back from a concussion. That That's mentally... All, all, all puns intended, very tough to do. She's been mentioning that she's had symptoms since Lords, which was some of our worry that she went and raced that race. Um, and I don't, I, I'm not personally blaming her. She, she got checked out by doctors from their words. The team said they did what they could. Maybe she didn't have the symptoms then, but that's the thing with these hidden injuries is they sometimes have a delayed onset and can last quite long. So, I mean, it's an inspiring ride that she probably hasn't had much bike time. She hasn't been able to train. So, like, she salvaged a lot with her result there. But what a what a crazy uh, sort of coincidence that Tani's also suffered one. Finn decided as well he's had one. So, you know, the sport's getting elevated. The pace is getting higher. Crashes do happen. There's more uh, knowledge of it in a loose way of saying that like there's knowledge but there's not <laughs> like there's oh there's been that movie concussion this is a very dangerous thing we're dealing with okay cool let's isolate what concussion you have how much rest you need what's the protocol it's literally so difficult yeah it, it really is i've um I've unfortunately had quite a lot to do with concussion uh, this year. One of the professional enduro motocross riders I coach, a guy called Joe Wooten, who races the sort of world championship circuit, he had a horrendous crash um, in testing a couple of months ago, and had a, essentially he's had a brain injury. Uh, he was uh, sedated for a number of weeks, and he's coming back now, very gradually, very slowly, and there's this concussion um, side effect. And the, the injury to his brain has caused me to do, as you can imagine, a lot of research, a lot of discussion, a lot of reading up and looking at what the rugby, uh, sort of the RFU are doing, what the Football Association are doing, how people put these protocol practices into play. And the thing that's most interesting about concussion, about a head injury, is the response is not linear in any way. So when you have a bone injury, you've generally got quite a set time frame. You know, if it's a very simple, like just blew it, cracked a collarbone. After four weeks, you're probably going to be able to do some like exercise. After six weeks, you should be pretty much healed up and we can really get you moving again and get you stronger. And, and that's, that's easier for the athlete to, 
process. They, they can see the time frame they can plan. But with a, a brain injury, with a concussion, you really have this non-linear response. And you might find one day you're really, really good. There's no problem. So you move on and then you have a problem. So what do we do? And when you look at these concussion protocols, it's really interesting because you've got a staged response and you have to, if you complete stage one, you can move on to stage two. If you can complete stage two, you move on to stage three. But if you fail stage three at any point, you must go back to stage two. And if you fail stage two at any point, you must go back to stage one. So you've got this like leapfrog forward and back. And I haven't talked to Miriam about hers, but I have talked to Finn to a fair degree about his because we were both at the Red Bull Performance Camp at Dovey the week before Fort William and Finn had come to the camp not feeling good he wasn't on his bike he was just wrapped up nice and warm you know just chilling and he was trying to start to get back into things and start to do some light exercise but the response wasn't good and obviously that's not my business to say any more than that but it's quite interesting he's very well looked after Red Bull were there you know Everyone was trying to help and uh, try and understand the situation he was in. But he was very sensible in the fact that he was trying to move on a stage, having a response and going, hey, this isn't great. And I, again, I don't know Tane's specific situation, but it is very, very difficult. And I think it's difficult to put something concrete into play for riders apart from having a scat test. And I, I, I'd be a big proponent of having riders do a pre-season uh, basically a concussion test. I think everyone should have one done because then it allows, if someone's had an injury, they can go down to the medical tent, go down to the medical center. They can take this test again. And if they pass it, hey, you're good to go. We're happy. If they don't pass it, I'm really sorry. You've got to sit out because these riders, when they're racing for contracts and money and prestige, they'll tell you what you want to hear. Yeah, I'm fine. I'm fine. I'm fine. And it, it'd be quite hard for a coach or a team manager to essentially have a subjective response and say, I'm really sorry, I'm not happy for you to race. I don't think that's a good call, even though they might be adamant that they are okay. But if you've got an objective, clear test of some degree to say this does show that there is, you know, there is a response here to that head injury, I think that's, um, I think that's a way we we probably should be looking at. It's, it's, there's no uh, right answer here and I've been thinking about a lot the conversations come up a hell of a lot on the podcast as well as before that I myself have had uh, uh, to be fair a number of concussions it's still a big worry of mine going forward and I'm lucky enough to take the emotion out and say I was glad that I sat out when I did and the team supported me but at the end of the day we need to start somewhere there's no perfect science with this I mean the rugby uh, industry or sport has some protocol. Are they doing it 100% correct? No, of course, of course yeah. you couldn't argue that, but at least they have the tests. I've done it. Um, so, I mean, how do we start it? Is it's, it's sort of annoying that it hasn't been started because there is money in the sport. Okay. I'm not saying as much as other industries and I'm not saying who's at fault here, but something needs to be started where at least, funding for the potential of one doctor or a team of doctors that are on the same page that do come to the race that can administrate these tests or at least say you know what like in motocross you go to the asterisk medical tent yeah, sorry exactly. you 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 because of these protocols that we all signed off on you can't race this race and because of that you have a two-week uh 
uh, well, banned from racing, with, for lack of yeah. a better term. Um, so I hope it can start. And with these riders talking about it, with them being vocal, maybe it does come from the riders, you know, not from the governing body saying, hey, this is dangerous and there's no support from the teams or the riders, you know, speaking to Tane's dad or hearing him. You know, when, when everyone is supporting the fact that maybe it can happen, this is the uh, this is it and again in the 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 big problem with a concussion is it's sort of the the deceleration when the you know the body suddenly comes to a very fast halt and the brain is sort of it's like jelly or you know just going back and forth in your skull it's sort, sort of floating and, and the inertia of that causes the, a big problem and that's why in downhill versus some other sports like if you think about road racing i'm not saying those guys don't get concussion but if you come off a motorbike you might be going 100 mile an hour but if you don't have a hard slam to the head and you slide you can get back up from it in in downhill um unless you're luca shaw you don't normally slide that well <laughs> but no. luca was so lucky wasn't he have yeah. you seen the meme have you seen uh, the meme i saw a really good meme so this good. Morning. no he put it up so uh go oh, check luca yes. shaw's yeah he's using it to kind of make himself feel better about a very d- disappointing race run yeah but, uh, yeah, I he's brilliant. He got exactly, you know, another day of the week. It's not weird. He doesn't slide and he hits something and he could yeah, yeah. injure himself. He hits the bottom and... of that wall ride. And that's the, this is the thing. It's it, if you come to a sudden stop, um, you, you have an injury. And in mountain biking, there's sudden stops everywhere in the shape of ro- rocks and roots and trees and berms and banks. And um, it, yeah, it's, it's a real hard one. It would be nice to see some more investment on that side of things. And also, I think, protection for the riders. Let's be honest. These riders, if they've got a short-term contract, if they're not racing for X number of weeks or months, their pay might be cut. It might be stopped. It might be that they feel as though I'm not going to get my result because I've got back-to-back World Cup weekends. I would love to have something that protects the riders in a, you know, in a bigger manner than we're trying to protect you by not racing. The riders going, well, hang on a second. I, I might not get any money. I might lose a contract. I might be not seen to be doing my job properly. Uh, these are the things that we have to look at it, as part of this conversation. That's a great point. Uh, you know, other um, sports have sort of medical exemptions. So if you, you know, you are medically, you know, injured or you can't compete, then, you know, you don't lose your card. You don't lose your ranking and yeah. stuff. So someone like yeah. a protected rider, that could work. We don't have a system for that, but yeah, some sort of funding. It could go further than just the concussion protocol, but you know, an injury fund helps some of these riders. A lot of them are getting some incredible results, but they can barely, you know, they're barely earning as much as a McDonald's manager or even a staff member there. So yeah, I mean, there's a lot of sort of pain points in the sport, but uh, it's good that the conversation's carrying on. Uh, but it hopefully something can start from it. That's where we're at, you know? Like, yes, we've made fun with Lucas Shaw and the sport is fun and we want to have a good time. But I think for anyone listening, a concussion is maybe a, a too soft of a turn. You have had a brain injury and and it's, you cannot see what it is or how bad it is, how long it's going to take. As as Alan said, we're, we're not doctors. I've done my fair share of research and you're diving into it heavily as well. And we're talking about a return to play. If you feel like you've knocked your head and you've got any symptoms that are not normal to your normal day-to-day, you've probably got a concussion. You need to get checked out. And when you go back to ride and you feel dizzy again, that means you've still got symptoms, means you haven't recovered on a loose way. I'm not 
giving advice. But yeah, I want absolutely. every rider absolutely. out there that has a crash, just remember, let's, that's the one you really need to play it safe with. Yeah, I agree. And the more people understand it, the better. And the more people talk about the pro, I'd I'd love to I'd love the riders to potentially talk about the process they're going through because it will help other people understand it. It's not a linear thing. And for downhill, a bit like motocross, it's very hard for us to go from to grade return. That to me is the biggest problem I have when I get people back from an injury is grading this return. If you're a soccer player, the graded return is so easy. You go on the pitch on your own with a coach and you just knock a ball back and forth. You do some drills with one other person. You go into small-sided games. You have non-contact. And then eventually you work your way back into full contact. But, you know, I've had motocross riders that have had ACL injuries. They've been cycling on their road bike. And then all of a sudden they're going to a GP track and jump in a triple you know, and you're like, well, where's the graded return from this? It's there just isn't any. And again, on the mountain bike, what are they going to do? Ride a trail center on their trail bike and then end up at Dovey on the racetrack or go to a bike park. It's, you know, this graded return is very, very difficult to actually factor in. And I think it's something that should be considered because to me, a pump track, you, you and I both know if you do three, four, five laps of a pump track without stopping high blood pressure, high heart rate, you know, high lactate, you feel worked. And if you can't handle that on a pump track, you probably can't handle riding a three, four minute downhill track. Yeah. And there's little, uh, let's maybe not, I'll try not harp on too much on the one topic, but it is, it's so interesting, so important, but I remember back then. So I sat out a race or two, had some tests or doctors in England, got the go ahead to finish out the season. And then I had, and I had hurt my ankle in the same crash. So I went and got, uh, uh, things on my ankle done and I talked about the concussion he says cool um, I specialize a little bit in that quite a holistic chiropractor at the time and he did some tests and I could literally I could see that I was a bit slow my vision and he said so you had this concussion when was it and and he made me feel a bit better because he said how did your last few races go I said they were okay I wasn't like quite where I wanted to be he said well you were delayed. Your vision was delayed. He did some work on me. And over the weeks, I could see that it improved. You know, he did sort of tests that I could factually see that I was better after he did some work. So there's a lot of delayed things. But um, let's not uh, lose the whole podcast to yeah, uh, <laughs> something yeah. like that. But uh, I think uh, Eleonora needs a big mention because she was another rider that attacked the whole way down. Got a great result in, in fourth. Valley Hall's obviously another crash in a race run that's going to be disappointing and maybe a little bit of a sort of uh, opening up another wound you know but uh, other than that I don't know where your head's at and I definitely want to get an understanding of Rachel yeah, showing oh, up in yes. practice <laughs> giving you yeah. more gray hairs that you don't have yeah exactly that I had a full head of hair before I started working with Rachel um so just to touch on Eleonora before I move on to Rach, I don't because I don't know whether people know this or not, but Mondraker have got a really interesting system with her coaching. So her coach, Ollie Morris, who works for Mondraker, he practices with her. So he's on track with a number board in B practice and he leads her out everywhere. So she follows him down the track and he gets her up to pace. He gets her on her line by riding with her. And that's pretty cool. It's not something that I've seen anyone else doing. I don't know of any other rider doing it because obviously to be on a World Cup track, you've got to have the qualification and the guy's an ex-World Cup racer himself. But it's just quite an interesting like um, 
insight, I guess, to the levels at which these uh, races are taking their coaching and the teams are supporting the races by having someone on track and literally towing Eleanor into these sections to, to get her up to speed quick. That's super interesting. I mean, I did pitch that to some teams when I uh, hung up my boots, but I didn't, didn't, I was too early. I was ahead of the game there. Yeah. I said, hey, yeah. I'll sacrifice myself for the yeah. greater good of the team or some young riders. But yeah, a little loophole there. Um, I wonder how long that may last, but I guess it's not illegal if the guy's earned his way into B practice. Uh, we're all Absolutely. following each other. Yeah. So there's nothing wrong with that. It's really cool that she's gone that extra mile and it's paying off. It's interesting. Absolutely. Uh, way of doing it. Uh, yeah, and and don't get me wrong. I think it's great. I'm I'm certainly not trying to raise it as a, as an issue. I think it's a positive thing. And Ollie's a great rider in his own right. He rides with Laurie a lot. He does a lot of work with Laurie. The guy can ride a bike. He's flat out. So I think it's just an asset. It's using that asset to a great degree, really. Um, but yeah, so Eleanor, that was awesome for her. And Rachel who knows? I think that Rachel sort of wanted to dip her toe into the water a little bit and just see. And that process started at Dovey. Um, I think with the timing equipment there, she, I think in a perfect world, what would have happened is Tane would have been there, Valley would have been there, Miriam would have been there. They'd have laid down some runs against the clock. Rachel would have laid down a run and she'd have gone, right, where am I? Am I in the mix? How am I doing? And she could have probably made some decisions based on that. But what happened at Dovey was the girls are like Valley was there and I know they get on really well. And again, this is my observation. So I'm quite happy for them to, to message me and tell me I'm talking about my ass. But I got the feeling as though Rachel set a time and Valley thought, you know what, why would I, why would I help you? Why would I put in a race? You know, why would I put in a fast time and help you see if you're on pace or not? So it's sort of, I don't think Valley put in a race in a, a hot lap on that track. And so Rachel put in a good time. It was a fast time, but that's her backyard. So coming to Fort William, she didn't do track walk. And that made me think she probably wasn't seriously going to try and race. But then to see her coming down the track in practice, I was quite surprised because I thought, well, you haven't done the track walk, you know. But she looked great on the bike. She she knows the terrain. She's ridden up there for, you know, over a decade. And I think she would have done very well. My biggest concern for her is not the pace on the bike it's it's the fact she doesn't train she's not strong if something goes wrong it will go wrong quickly and from some of the conversations I've had with her I still don't think that Achilles is I think it's healed but I don't think the rehab is has been 100% signed off shall we say so um, it it will be a risk for her to come back but I think we both know Rachel when she gets on a bike is one of the fastest that has ever got on a bike. I mean, that's uh, without a doubt. And uh, I was wondering about the preparation and it, it sounds like it's such a question mark and maybe not even this season because she would have to put in some structured training um, and, and get the, you know, she is a mom and we saw in the pits with the little one. I mean, I think it's incredible. It's, it, the sport misses her. So it's great to have her back. She's done incredible things in the sport. So she's got nothing to prove, but maybe that will be fun for her. Um, but I think your reservations ring true is hopefully she realizes, hey, this isn't a game. You know, things could yeah. go wrong. I need to put yeah, yeah, the yeah. I need to put the training in. Yeah, I mean, skill-wise, I can get down the track or Duffy. But uh, after a full week, uh, you're going to be pretty tired. So that was awesome. Awesome to see you back. 
maybe we should, uh, if I haven't missed anything, cruise on over to the men. I don't know where yes. you're at with if we've missed yeah, anything. Yeah, yeah. And there were some great rides. I know Cabaret uh, is going to be, that's disappointing because she's just looking like she's back from injury, looking strong and just not the race run or result she wanted. But on to the men. Um, Bruni, out. Boom, done. I know. I think um, I think that's a real shame. A real shame. And he got bitten pretty early um, on the track, so that's a real shame. And obviously, with the with Finn's injury, that pits. I don't think Chris Grice qualified, so definitely a tough week for those guys. Um, and yeah, it it just shows the nature of the track. And I also think the difference between the protected riders and unprotected riders. You know, Aaron Gwynn got a puncture in his qualifying. That's him. He's he's not made the cut, and that, that's a very strange thing to think about. Um, someone with that much success, who's probably still getting to know another new bike, a new iteration, still trying to develop that, and then he gets a curveball with a puncture, and he's he's not made Sunday. Yeah, it's just like when it goes bad, it's just spiraling for him or anyone of that matter, you know. And uh, that's the nature of the sport and the protected riders. You don't, you know, after a few years and some bad results, he's not in there. Um, yeah. The overall, I mean, Bruni is a guy that can fight for an overall. So this is a big knock to the overall season, I feel. Um, I really yeah. do, especially with Loris having another issue. Um, he can't seem to find any luck as well. I mean, it's just, it's crazy to see. But um, yeah, I'm I'm a little bummed. I'm, I'm Obviously, he's bummed. We're bummed. The overall might look a little different. Um, with with Bruni out, but that's what happens up there. You've got some. So you mentioned Charlie having a having an injury at the BDS. So I was very impressed with his qualifying, and maybe didn't quite pick him at Fort William, thinking like that the, you know, like the big name riders that have done well at Fort William. Like it's such a tough track; it's hard to creep in there. Yeah. But I mean, he's really shown up and and shown his speed on a on a proper track. Oh, Charlie, he's really riding well at the moment. He's gelled with that bike and he he's riding this wave now. And, and what was interesting for him was he, in practice, he looked incredible. We talked about time run because on Friday they get time practice. The top riders will get a time practice run or two. They've got a window of opportunity. And although that's sort of just for bragging rights, it does give you an idea of if you're on pace. And Charlie came down in first place by quite a margin. I think he got shuffled to second behind Laurie in time practice and then went on to qualifying and, you know, again, backed that up, qualified second and behind behind Laurie again. So he, he definitely had the pace. And then what was difficult, and I don't know if he's really mentioned this. I think a couple of people have mentioned it on social, but he hasn't. And I think this shows the character of the man. He had a big crash on Sunday morning. So his hand really swelled up. I he's you know he'll get that checked out, and there might be there might oh, who knows what the potential damage is. But the poor lad came down from his last practice run with his forearm on the bars. So you know that's not a good sign. So I think to me that explains more of his race result on Sunday than not dealing with the pressure. He he was riding really really well and just tried to get down in one piece. And I think when he looks back on that. He handled the pressure incredibly well. I'm sure he would have been top five without 
you know, the having to have his hand completely strapped up to hold on to the bars and to come down, I would call it limping down to 15th. Amazing, you know, incredible. And I think that that's, that just goes to show if he can come 15th with that sort of, um, sort of uh, upset or, you know, interruption to the perfect prep, it, it shows that this guy really is a top 10 rider and it's really exciting for his future. Yeah, for Charlie, I mean, that's sometimes what a rider needs is just to actually see him up there with the big boys. He's obviously shown speed, shown some qualities, time runs, whatever it is, but to do it on a big track like that and then, you know, I still think like you've given us more intel into his issue there in his race run. So it's not just tired or kind of rode a bit tight trying to protect qualifying third he's had an injury got it down at 15 that's great for him hopefully the injury is not too bad and he'll be able to go from strength to strength really and before we maybe get into the top five i mean danny won the bds we know he's happy to camp in that parking lot like where are we at with that i mean he is a deserved winner of that race he's got the pace is he coming into the week sort of too committed and starting, you know, super quick and other riders are easing more into it and their fastest run is in finals and maybe Danny's showing pace early on. I mean, you have trained him in the past. We know how committed he is to to winning that race and that's all he really wants. So not his best finish. I don't know if you spoke to him or if there's anything that I missed. Yeah, I, it, that's an interesting one because I definitely had Danny pegged as being, you know, top three guy there I, I i would have expected him to be at least on the podium and his bds win was no surprise but he you know he didn't really do what danny can do at all this weekend it's not i don't feel as though we saw uh a timed i can't remember where he was in time training but to you know, he didn't qualify or in the final really show what he can do, and I'm not really sure of what the specific reason is. But I do wonder whether there there was something behind it. Yeah, I mean, he's timed running in third, so you know, right yeah, up there. So Laurie, there. Laurie obviously was the the star rider in the time run, but Danny was yeah. right there ahead of Charlie yeah. Hatton. So. Yeah. Yeah, I haven't spoken directly to him. It's just it's obviously disappointing because he wants one thing and one thing only there. And it's deserved of it. We know he's fit. We know he can ride that track. So little disappointing for him considering. Let me just grab just so we are on the same page. I mean, it is eight. It's not the I, know, I, know, I know, I know, I know. Like, I know. and it's four seconds back, but uh, know. you know, he's three seconds back from a podium. It's not where he expects to be on a track like this. He wants to be up there at least on, on the podium. But the French really came out and, and, and sort of came out swinging. Loris yeah, Vergier, we, we mentioned it a bit. I mean, he can't buy any luck. I know. that chain. I saw his bike at the finish, and the chain had got, like, snarled up, I think, off the back of the chain ring, between the chain device and the back of the chain ring, and there was just nothing going on there at all. Yeah, he said he sort of wind, got wind blown, and he, and he went offline and knocked the chain ring on a rock, and that was the end of that. That happens so it's a so real often. racing. It's a racing incident yeah. up there. It's so brutal on bikes and equipment. It's actually a surprise. There's not more issues in a race run because you you've got to push it, especially in 2022 to do well at a race. You've got to go and ride at 100. percent I think in years past, like a Greg Menard with his fitness and how strategic he is, he could get down with a really planned 95 
percent run with a hundred percent in uh, areas he can risk. I I just don't know if you can do that even at Fort William anymore with the likes of Amory and Depilla, which are going to go a hundred percent, and they physically can handle it. So did so I did some research. Oh, yeah. I, I actually so now I've updated it, and uh, so granted he had it did not start in twenty eighteen. And I feel like I'm not going to count that race because he got injured before he was there. This is Greg Minar. Yeah. So he's had 18 starts. One was wow. World Champs, but it's a world event. Yeah. We know he's had seven wins, which everyone's like, that's amazing. He's had 11 podiums. Wow. Listen to this one. Of those 18 starts, and granted, the first time he started there, he crashed out, as far as I remember, spectacular at the bottom. Yeah. and got 22nd. So 17 are top eights. Not just, just top tens, yeah. top eights. So only once was he not in the top eight, and that's when he crashed out with inside of the finish line. It, the guy's I mean, just incredible. It really I mean, is. At that course, it just shows you there's horses for courses, and he that's his second home, and it just suits all aspects of the you know his him as a rider as a whole. So yeah, he's carrying that you, speed. That's where I think Greg's so good is he's carrying that momentum and riding that momentum, and the top the top turns. There's some of those turns where if you don't come into them perfectly, they can stand you up and you lose some speed coming out of them. And he flows through that. He puts a lot of effort into... Greg likes everything to be perfect. If everything's perfect and he's very happy with the bike, his body, um, the setup, you know, everything's there. He really rides that confidence and he'll really be able to push deep. But if something's not quite there or there's an issue or he's distracted in any way, this is... I don't think he was that happy with this result. You know, that's what's incredible is seventh. I think that he's like, yeah, that was okay. You know, not a bad run. And the preparation that he puts into it, he wants those rewards. Um, and I think he, it shows that he deserves them. And, and I think any rider can learn from that because you put this effort in and the, the outcome can be there. And was there anything that maybe was derailing him or do you think he got pretty good prep? Because I know when he comes to Fort William, he just turns any season around, whether Fort William's early in the year or not, because he knows he can do well there. So it's like a snowball effect for him. Yeah, for sure. And he um, he went, he actually went to a wind tunnel uh, before coming up to Fort William. It was quite an interesting thing. Uh, him and PT and some of the team were at a, a wind tunnel to look at some of the aero stuff. And uh, obviously, uh, you've been to Wintana yourself, and it's from you know the feedback that I've had and the discussions we had. There was some really interesting stuff there, and the the key thing, really, with I, I'm not going to break any confidence and give any specifics, but it's not rocket science to say that it's position over equipment is the first thing. You know, it's trying to get small and trying to find the right position in the wind. But the the wind tunnels are normally geared towards first of all, race cars and second of all, road cyclists. And one of the the translations you also almost have to make is when you've got the aerodynamicist in there saying, this is the position you should be in to have the smallest CDA. That's all well and good, but they don't appreciate the technicality of the terrain, the position you have to hold. Your saddle isn't at full cycling height, where a time trialist will have this position that he can relax on as opposed to trying to hold all that tension in your legs for this position. So there was quite a lot of, I know he put a lot of it prep into that, and that was very much brought into his race approach. But I don't think practice was ideal for him on Sunday, if I'm honest, because I, I went over to see him before practice started on Sunday. 
And I just wanted to confirm what his approach was, what his plan was, how many runs he wanted to do, if there was anywhere on track he wanted me to film, all these sorts of things just to try and tick all the boxes and make him, you know, comfortable come race run. And he was casually sat there getting changed, putting his trousers on, really happy to chat, talking about track walk. And I said, how many runs are you trying to get in in practice? And he said, I'll, I'll do two. And I said, Greg, it's quarter past 11, track Practice started at 11 o'clock and you have one hour between 11 and 12. And he said, no, 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 practice is at 12. I said, mate, it's not 12. You need to get up there now. And I don't know what had happened. I don't know what communication had, you know, gone by the wayside with the the team or Greg. But these things, you know, this is a mistake that you might expect the the first year junior putting out the back of his pants. Not normally from a 40-year-old guy that's been here for 22 years. I was like, oh, man. So I don't think that helped. And, um, he, you know, the, and also in the race run, and I don't know whether this would have put him off at all. He did mention this, and I don't know if you saw this on the live feed, was his number board on his back had come off and it was really flapping. Now, I wonder whether you'd, whether you'd hear that, whether you'd be distracted by that, because to me, that would probably make me think has something come off. You know, I'd almost be wrestling with it to get it loose. But um, these little things when we're talking about being absolutely in that sort of flow where you're not thinking about anything on a race run, that's normally when you do your best. But when there's, it's a conscious process and you're, you're in the present and you're thinking about what's happening and what might happen, maybe that, that's the, the 1% that takes away from the win. Well, I mean, uh, at the top end of the sport, the pointy end, I mean, any little thing, like you say, can get you out of that flow state, even relaxing to understand what it is. What's that noise? Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. oh, that's yeah. my back number. Okay, well, I'm, I'm, that's yeah, yeah. I don't have to deal with that. I mean, yeah. it literally can add up to a little bit of momentum down the track. Absolutely. But I, <laughs> I'm Marie Perron. I'm jumping yeah. ahead. Yeah, 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 yeah. But yeah, the yeah. French, the Prella as well. I mean, I said it coming in, wrote an article, and um, I said those guys are going to attack at 100%. Can, is the Prella suited to track? I don't know. Amari is coming off uh, a win. He's coming off winning there the last time. I mean, he was the favorite, uh, but yeah. Laurie out-qualified him, but that might have been just a fire in his belly, and you know him. Amari is – like, there are a few riders that just want to win at all costs and have that motivation, and obviously Greg is – kept motivation that he, he wants to win still but i mean amri is almost win at all costs but it was a pretty calculated run i must say as hard as he was going uh it was pretty pretty clinical for his standards on how loose he can get you that that's that was exactly my point you, you've taken the words out of my mouth when you watch him his race run at lords it was full attack he made that mistake where he got onto the wrong line sort of halfway down and then it was like all bets are off it's, you know, shit or bust. But I didn't feel as though that was the same approach in the Fort William race run. He just looked to do it really well. And as you saw the riders coming down, there was quite a few mechanicals. People were having problems dropping chains. Um, they weren't able to pedal. There was two or three guys that would have been a bit closer. And obviously, Loris was one of them. And I don't know whether Coulange had a problem, but a couple of them weren't able. You could see they weren't pedaling. And although that probably hindered them less than you might think at Fort William. They were able to just tuck really small, carry momentum, hope the chain doesn't snag up in the back wheel. Amory, you almost felt as though he came to that road gap, 
And then he didn't have that problem. And he was like, right, I'm really going to go now. And I was, I thought his run was, it was a good, fast, aggressive run. It wasn't that wild, loose run that you can sometimes see. And it, he really just carried that momentum. And in practice, he was carrying loads of nice speed. He, when he, I find him, Deprella, Vergier, when you watch them ride, they carry this lovely corner speed. It's not loose. It's not ragged. Loris, especially, I think he looks so smooth a lot of the time when he's riding, very clinical. And they can then step it up again for that finals race run. Whereas other riders, like to me, in practice, one of the best riders to watch in practice is Ronan Dunn, uh, Continental. I think he's Newt Proof he rides for, Irish lad. He just is an incredible rider to watch. Like I've got no, I don't know the lad. I don't work with him at all. But when I'm trackside, I'm like, this guy's going to pull out the Remy Tyrion line straight away. He's just going to do the wild line. He's going to look incredible and he looks the fastest. And I think someone like Ronan, when he gets that together and maybe realizes he doesn't have to ride over his head, will put in that race run. And that's maybe the maturity where you see in the Amory's and the Lorises and the Coulanges, it's momentum, it's average speed. It's, you know, that consistency that they have. And because they've got that willingness and that desire to win, they will then go, now's the time when I'm going to risk it. You know, I'm going to risk it in my race run, but maybe not before. Yeah, I think it was a it was a mature run from Amory, and he's probably gaining that experience and understanding what it takes to win. And uh, look, as much as we spoke about Greg's career at Fort William, uh, three in a row is pretty special for Amory coming back from injuries and stuff. But um, I think he made some of the most speed down the motor. I haven't gone and picked apart the splits because someone will do it online but uh visually i just think when he put a pedal stroke in he was not because he needed to get up to speed or he was like oh i don't have as much speed as i want it was like i'm making more speed here i'm driving forward every pedal stroke that he put in was like how greg has been you know sometimes getting an extra one but if he put a pedal stroke in it was really well used and he drove forward um so for me i mean laurie i think without a mistake and a, and a more clean, perfect run, was right there. And I think he handled uh, qualifying first in front of a home crowd incredibly well. I just think that was a racing, it's a super tough uh, section of the track to get smooth. You spoke to, about it, that you guys had riders uh, worried about it. Um, so for him, I was super impressed with that. And Deprella, I mean, speaking of fitness, these guys are all strong. But Tapella was able to sort of pedal wheelie out of that left turn before the right into the road game. For me, that just shows how strong he is. It just shows the preparation these all these top guys are, are putting in. Exactly that. And this is when you, you're probably two minutes into the track, two and a half minutes into the track at that point, and it's super rough at the top. And it's that composure and knowing where to where to put these pedal strokes in. And that's the other thing, coming back to your point on Amory where he was putting the pedals in was where it was needed. Once you go over sort of 25 mile an hour, 35, 40 kilometers an hour, 80 to 90% of the power you're putting into your bike is to overcome wind resistance. It's like an exponential uh, factor at those sorts of speeds. And in the past, I think people thought what we need to do is stand up and just go full ham on the pedals. But as we've started to understand this, the effects more, um, you can understand the benefit of getting as small as you possibly can. And, and there was some great pictures of Laurie and he was holding sort of either side of the stem um, coming down that motorway 
during qualifying, I'm not sure if he did it in his race run, but trying to maintain that speed and getting small is almost more beneficial than standing up being a big frontal area and pedaling. So it's, you know, everyone's, they're not leaving any stone unturned. I saw um, Reese Wilson, I think he probably, I don't know how his weekend didn't look to go that smooth. And I would have, I would have thought, you know, Reese, um, Greg Williamson, potentially as the Scottish lads would have wanted to really have that showing. But, you know, looking at Reese, Reese was still in front of me in the, the finish area and he had safety pins all the way up the back of his legs, you know, pulling those trousers in as tight as they'll go. But, you know, this is what we want to do to win. This is what we want to do to cheat the air, to stay as small as we can and understand that um, these factors play a part. They play a big, big part in the in the final race run. Yeah, it'd be interesting. You'd have to go and get a stats guy and, and do some serious calculations to understand what sort of power you need to put out once you're over 40 mile an hour or 40, even 40K an hour. I think yeah, after about, from hour. what I remember, about 40K an hour from That's my it. wind tunnel yeah. memory is where you got to start probably tucking unless you can make some serious power or you know the wind resistant isn't too bad. So that's super interesting. And, and Benoit Coulange was one of those guys getting onto – uh, the the speed tuck in between yeah. the jumps, even if it was yeah. for a second, I loved it. He's yeah. but he moving his hand straight to the middle of the stem. It's, I loved it's it. Brilliant. It's and brilliant. I think Troy, obviously Troy's not there. Uh, it looks like he's back on enduro bike, and I don't know if he's going to make it back for Leo Gang. Mm, I'd have okay. to text him and see. Yeah. But he was one of the not early adopters, but he really was smart about when to tuck, how to get small, and and. One of the first riders that was of small, small stature that won at Fort William. You know, for him to win there, I always used to think it's a, it's a big man's track. It's yes. a, it's a Rennie, it's a Petey, Kavarik, Menard, these big riders that can carry speed. But um, it's interesting to see that sort of any rider like a lorry can do well, but I don't think the motorway in those conditions suited lorry enough, and that's kind of where he started losing time. Yeah. Um, down the bottom there yeah for sure yeah exactly that and yeah just looking at some of the other riders who had really good results as well i think it was amazing to see luke myers smith in that top 10 um him and his brother uh i work with both of them and remy to be third in juniors um i think remy's time would have put him top 15 in the elite men and i think again looking at jackson and um uh jordan's times i think those times would have been top five i, yep. I don't know if you've got was, them in front of no, you no no they, they were top five yes so they were top five or jackson was fourth in quali equivalent yeah and they are top five at fort william yeah. right i mean we haven't seen that for a little while from the juniors you know we've got to look back to the likes of troy and that where the juniors were able to mix it up and these two slash even three let's not take anything away from remy but on a track like fort william i don't I have no answers for that. I think this is it. I mean, I have no answers. Yeah. I took I took like ten years to figure out it's that. It's incredible. Track. These it, guys are juniors. It really is incredible, and I know the track does develop and get rougher by the time the final elite men come down. You, absolutely, I get that. It will, you know, the juniors potentially have a better roll of the dice. But when you're talking about a 17 year old lad who's been there a couple of times, hats off to them. I'm I'm so impressed and. They're, they're working really hard. Jordan was doing some really technical lines straight off the bat. His mindset looks to be very, um, 
I wouldn't say aggressive, but he's competitive. He's like, I want to thrash you. You know, I think he's got that attitude. I really want to put the hurt on you. And uh, Jackson seems a nice lad and just enjoying life. And Remy's the same. Like Remy's very laid back. He enjoys his riding. He puts in his work when he's at home and he's training. He's seeing the fruits of those labors. He's seeing that I can compete on a, you know, four and a half, five minute track. And that's got to be exciting for them. So this, the sharp end of the juniors is quite incredible. And um, I, I think it's exciting. And then for Luke, his brother to come into the top 10, you know, to come in ninth, he, he doesn't want to leave any stone unturned. He works super hard and I, I'm excited uh, to see these guys get up there and, um, you know, show, show their names, help the brands they, they're spot, they're sponsored by and their teams, because I think it's important for the sport to show that, you know, there's more than just the two or three big teams. There's a lot of guys who can really get a result and there's different bikes that they ride and um, that can only be good, only be good. Yeah, definitely. And uh, Angel was in 10th. That's uh, a rider yeah. rounding out the top 10. Baptiste Perron, um, Dylan Levesque, I worked with him a little bit at Scott. I think he's going to be a rider to watch in the future. Another French guy and these French guys are just pulling each other yeah, along. Exactly. They I, do want to beat the crap out of each other, but then at the end of the race run, it's got to be pretty good when you three uh, Frenchmen on the podium going, shit, we, you know, that's that's cool. There's camaraderie as well. Um, and Benoit, I didn't know what, he didn't really have a track record for me to look at at Fort William. Yeah. But he's just cemented himself as one of the guys now on any track, which we knew it's silly to me to even say. I, I just didn't know exactly where he'd fit in because of the lack of a track record coming in at Fort William, that is. But um, yeah, clearly super, super fit. And the sport's in a great place. I mean, if there's a race that can deal with weather like that, it has to be Scotland. I mean, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the spectators. I try to explain to someone, if you go and watch it as a spectator, there's barely any accommodation in the town. And the town's like 10, 15 <laughs> minutes away. And then you need to get bussed in. And then they drop you at the bottom of the road. Yeah, and yeah. then you got to walk up like 20, 30 minutes or whatever it is. And then when you want to go home, it's a 30 to 40 minute line to get out. And then half the time you're in a campsite. I mean, they're diehard fans that come out to this race. Absolutely. I think you can't talk about Fort William and not mention the fans because on Sunday morning, I was coming up for practice and I was I was on my e-bike and I was sort of trying to ride through the finish area and then I can ride up a fire road to take me halfway up. And the queue to get on the gondola was that far. It had gone out of the gondola station, it had gone round past the cafe and it was running up alongside the track. So it had gone past the finish area and it was it was basically parallel to the track. And this was at probably nine o'clock in the morning. And it's quite incredible. And it's something that, you know, we've all missed, especially with COVID and not being having people around. The finish area was absolutely packed. I couldn't get, you know, I couldn't get where I needed to go easily. I had to go completely around the back. And it's just, it's just amazing. I think the fans are incredible. And like you say, it's not like it's in a ski resort where you just roll out and you're there. You know, this is not a European style ski resort. They've got to come in from... Uh, a small quaint B&B and, you know, can't park anywhere near it. They trek through. They're all wearing nets because of the midges, because you used to get eaten alive by the midges up there. It's, they're diehard fans and, and it's it's fantastic. It really is. 
Yeah, I love I love seeing it. I didn't miss not being there considering it was wet and cold. But then you, when you see the race runs and you see the fans and you just know that, ah, man, Lords was special, was really special. But for yeah. William is special every year and they're going to host the 2023 World yes. Champs. I know, so that's going to be a big one. Yeah, I saw all the announcement. That's that's going to be huge. Book your campsites now. <laughs> but, uh, no, that was awesome. I don't know if I missed anything or any topics that have come to mind before we wrap this show up. No, I think that, um, it, you know, Fort William is defined by the track first and foremost. It's a brutal track. It deteriorates, it develops, it challenges the riders and the bikes. And everyone put on an amazing show. It was great to, to discuss some of the highs and lows of the weekend. And um, personally, one of my lows is obviously Joe Breeden, a guy I've worked with for years, had a horrible crash. He's had quite, he sustained quite a bad elbow injury. Um, he's up in Inverness Hospital having an operation, the trauma unit up there. So, um, you know, best wishes to him. And I know he'll come back strong and stronger than ever because he's, he's just a, a real diligent, hardworking lad. But that's the bad side to the sport. It's, it's very sad, but... Um, we'll have to look forward to Leo Gang for everyone else. It's not far away, only a couple of weeks, and um, we'll be back racing again, which I think is exciting. We've not got such a long break this time. It is so exciting. But uh, yeah, send uh, Joe Breeden. I also get on with him very well. Uh, big talent for the future. Send him some love on Instagram. Hopefully, uh, he's out, out of surgery. Message. It was a horrendous crash. Guys, this was the Crank Brothers Race Review. It's with me, but you've heard enough from me. They are synonymous with downhill racing, celebrating 11 years in a row with that mallet DH pedal. Alan, I know you also use the shoes. I said it, I said maybe one of, and then I was like, hang on. It's easily the most comfortable shoe that I've ever had. I just put it on, bolt my cleats to it, and off I went. No real adjustment, no bedding in, which was great. And it's got such a nice cushion and cup on the heel, which on in downhill and enduro, sometimes it's tough to find when you're moving around your feet. Sometimes your heel starts slipping out of a shoe. I don't get that with the Crank Brothers shoe at all. No, I, I wear the flats and I actually was wearing the flats on the track. So I wear them all day. I come up on my bike and I wear them all day. So they're, they're, they're comfortable enough for you to wear as a normal trainer too. So yeah, I love it. I'm, I'm very, very lucky to be on some amazing products. Um, and Crank Brothers shoes are, are one of the ones to be in for sure. Yeah, and they're on the shoes of riders like Bernard Kerr, qualified in fifth, didn't have a great showing. Lucas Shaw, go check his Instagram the, the meme of him sliding all over Scotland and the world is hilarious. Laurie Greenland, Camille Blanchet, hey, you name it. There's a big roster there. Uh, guys, go and check them out because without them, this podcast wouldn't be as easy for me to do without likes of Alan. I know Sven jumps on. We're going to have a host of different uh, guys on the podcast. We're just trying to keep it fun, entertaining. If you've got any feedback, hit me up. But uh, yeah, you know what to do. Like, subscribe. Uh, give us a review. Until the next one, enjoy. Enjoy.